Thank you, Olivia, for that ministry and music. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here. Thank you for indulging me these past few weeks. It's been fun and exciting to be able to preach. Uh, And so I appreciate the opportunity. I want to first say thank you to the elders for giving me this opportunity. I've loved being able to preach through different texts, whether it was Hebrews 10 or last week in Psalm 94, the Avenger. Um, If you're getting tired of me, that's okay. This is your chance. You're going to get a break after after this time. So hang in there. Thank you for bearing with me. But it's been an exciting month uh, for us, and and I've really enjoyed it. If if you haven't heard, uh, you know, some of our prayer requests. Uh, lately, uh, Sarah and I just bought a house, so that's been another exciting thing that's happened in July. We're pumped. We're excited about that. A lot going on. And then there's the Jars trip coming up and, and all sorts of things. Pinebrook. Uh, it's been an exciting, busy summer, and it's been pretty neat. One thing I learned, though, from this process of buying a house, it was our first one, we never did it before, uh, is that it can be a long process. And when I say long, like, it's not really all that long, as some things can be even longer. But we started this, this process of looking for a house back in mid-May. Okay, we were just on vacation, and actually we made a call to start looking into houses while we were on our way coming back from vacation. And so um, from that time, it took us a few weeks um, in the process of actually looking at houses until the end of May when we found the house that we actually ended up buying. But that was at the end of May, and now it's mid-July. And from that time then until now, it felt like forever. It felt forever. Have you ever you know, been excited about something and it just can't come soon enough? You're all excited just to be able to have the process done? I mean, these are things that I learned. Maybe some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been through this process before. But from the beginning, there was uh, the initial offer. There was waiting to see if somebody would accept your offer. Then there was the counter offer. And then you got to sit and think about that for a little bit and then decide if you're going to accept the counter offer. And then after that, you, you go in and, and look into having inspections. And, and then you talk with your realtor some more. And then you go into to the bank and you've already done that once. And you've got to fill out a lot of paperwork. I, f- I found you learn how to sign your name really, really well, right? You, if you didn't know what your name was before or the date, you, you learn what the date was on that particular day. So you sign papers, you go in, you, you uh, go to the bank, you wait for the bank, you wait for people, you wait for the inspection to be done. You cross your fingers hoping that, there's not, that the thing isn't infested with termites and going to fall on your head soon um, or it's going to blow over or something like that. Then after that, you, you have to negotiate with the seller, see if they're going to fix anything. You wait to hear back from them. They might provide a counteroffer. You wait to see if they're going to fix what they're going to fix. And then you wait some more. And then the day comes and it's over. And you finally, you have the key in your hand and you're excited. It's cool. And so we were so excited to be finished with the process. Well, this morning, you can also be excited because we are finally finishing up Esther. It has taken us a long time. (laughs) I'm glad I have my wife's support. It's always a good thing. We, we have been in this book for a very long time, and probably you've been wondering, Pastor Dave, when are you going to just finish the thing? Well, here we go. We're going to actually finish Esther this morning. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, we were going through a series in Esther in the evening services, and, uh, and that was my, my goal, to do it in the evening. And, and then it came to this week, and I was, I was wondering, as I always do, what am I going to preach on? And I was sitting there thinking, I said to Sarah, I just can't think of anything to preach on. She said, why don't you just finish Esther? And I said, no, you, I can't do that. It's in the evening service. You know, this is the morning service. I'm doing an evening series. 
And, and she delivered to me, I think, what was the most compelling argument I've ever heard her give. She said, so? <laughs> I said, okay, you have a point. So, here we are. Esther chapter 9. We're going to finish this. And, uh, you know, if you haven't been with us for the, uh, the evening messages, uh, we'll, we'll have to catch you up a little bit. Because it has been a while. Even if you have been... Even if you're the most faithful student and you're like, Pastor Dave, I just can't wait to hear your next. I'm laughing because that's a hilarious statement. You're, uh, if, if you just can't, you're just sitting there waiting and waiting for the, whenever my last message would be and you took notes and everything. Still, it's been a while. So we have to go back over the story to catch us up, because after all, we're plopping ourselves down right at the very end of the story. And we're depriving ourselves of everything that came before. So we're going to endeavor to finish, endeavor to finish today. And no, not just endeavor. I promise you this will be, will be it after waiting a year. Okay, so let's go back into the story. You have Esther open, I hope, and uh, we're going to be talking about chapter nine. But if you want to just flip through with me, we can go all the way back to chapter one. And I'm going to try and rush through this so that my entire sermon isn't just spent on retelling the story, but it's important. Uh, As you might know already, if you're familiar with it, Esther was just an ordinary Jewish girl living in the land of Persia. This is a time after the the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish nation. So now they are no longer living in freedom. They are under uh, the the rule of a foreign country that occupies them. And Babylonian uh, kingdom has since gone away. Now the Persians have come and they're the new power in the world. And uh, she's living in the capital of Persia, which is Susa. She's raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. Some think it's his, his, her, her uncle, but it's not. It's, it's her, her cousin. He's just older than she is. And it seems that her parents must have died young. We're not really told. just says she was without father and mother. So we can assume maybe that they died when she was still young and Mordecai raised her up. As she was growing up, the king of Persia named Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, if you have an NAS. I like Xerxes. I wanted to name my, my son Xerxes. Sarah voted me down on that. But uh, I like that name better. He became angry with his wife, whose name was Vashti, and threw her out of the palace and began a search for a new queen. All eligible young maidens from all across the kingdom were brought, and that included Esther. After being presented with many women, the king liked Esther the best, and she became his queen, though she did not tell him her religion or nationality. Now, it seemed that Mordecai must have worked for the king in some way. We know that he sat by the king's gate and that he raised Esther. And somehow he had connections. He must have been close to the royal guard or something because it seemed like he was in the know. And while Esther was in the palace, we're told that Mordecai actually foiled a plot on the king's life so that he was going to be assassinated by two individuals. But Mordecai was the one who found out about it. He related to Esther. Esther related to the king. And these individuals were caught and the disaster averted. Now, you would think that Mordecai would have been uh, rewarded at this time, but he wasn't. And so time went on and nothing was done for Mordecai. And if we're reading this from just a purely secular perspective, we think something's wrong. He should have been rewarded, but we see that God's going to use it later on in life for a greater purpose. So that happens. And then after Esther is made queen, we see the king also promotes this man named Haman. Haman, as you recall, was uh, the Agagite, a descendant of Agag, the king who hated the Jews, an ancient enemy of the Jews. Okay, so we know something bad is going to happen. Haman didn't like how Mordecai refused to bow to him. Everybody else in the kingdom would bow to Haman as he passed by. He'd make them do that and everybody would respond, but Mordecai didn't. 
And so he had this particular grudge against Mordecai. And after people came after Mordecai and said, what are you doing? Don't you know you're supposed to bow down to Haman? Mordecai still refused. And so this burned Haman up so much that he decided that he needed to do something. Not just get back at him, but get back at his his entire family. So Haman hatched a plan. He uh, went into the king and said, hey, king, there's these people out there that don't obey your laws, that don't listen to you, that don't want to have anything to do with you, and we should wipe them out. We should get rid of them. Because if you allow them to remain in your kingdom, there's just going to be nothing but anarchy. And this king who's prone to um, just being unpredictable in all sorts of ways, loves to drink, got angry, just threw out his queen in the first chapter, very unpredictable character, says, okay, fine. I don't even know who you're talking about. I haven't even investigated myself, but go ahead, wipe out a whole nation. And it was so. So, uh, Mordecai, I'm sorry, not Mordecai, Haman decided to cast lots. In other words, uh, this thing called the, the poor. And he rolled the dice, as it were, to decide a day in which this was going to take place. And the 13th day of the month of Adar was chosen. In our calendar, it varies from year to year. That's around the time of April to May. And so that's what happened back in that time. And Mordecai wept when he heard the news that the entire Jewish nation was going to be wiped out. He tore his clothes and wept openly in the square. Now, it seems that Esther didn't hear about any of this. She was in the the castle, in the palace, whatever you want to call it, and she was sheltered from the news of the outside world. So Mordecai had to actually go and tell her, or somebody actually had to go and see what Mordecai was doing and report it to Esther. And when Esther heard about this, then she went and inquired of Mordecai, what's up? What's going on? Why are you this way? Why don't you rise and, and, and uh, dress normally and, and quit this morning? Well, Mordecai informs her just what his morning is about. And when she hears it, she's distraught. Initially, she wants to take a, a separated kind of view, that there's nothing she can do, that it's, it's a terrible thing, but doesn't want to get involved. But Mordecai presses her and says, you have a unique relationship to the king. You are his queen. And only you can actually go in before him and stop this plot that Haman has devised. At first, she says no. She doesn't want to have anything to do with it. She's scared for her own life, obviously. There's this rule that went uh, back in the ancient world that if you walked into the king's presence in Persia and you weren't summoned, he could kill you. He could order you executed right there on the spot. The only exception to that would be if he extended the golden scepter to you and then you could speak your case and your life would be spared. But Esther knew that if she went before the king and had not been summoned as such, she could be putting her life in her hands. And so she said, no, I don't want to do it. But Mordecai continued to press her and said, if you don't do this, you are going to perish anyway. He said, don't think that because you're in a position of authority that somehow you can escape this. You've managed to keep it secret for now, but you won't forever. So after persuasion, after thinking about it, considering it, Esther agreed. She realized that her life was in jeopardy no matter what. And so she said to Mordecai that she would in fact go before the king. And she asked him to pray for her and for others to fast and pray for her as well. Well, then the day finally came. She approached the king and he extended the golden scepter and her life was spared. And she had an opportunity to ask, but it seems from the text, one interpretation is that she was a little scared. And so she didn't exactly ask what she was intending to ask the first time. She asked if the king would go to a banquet with her and he agreed. And then he did so and asked what was on her mind. And she said, come to another banquet with me. But then the third time, she finally was able to get up the courage to speak what was on her mind. 
And so she said to the king, King, there is somebody who has devised a plan to destroy my entire family. And of course, the king was outraged. He said, who would do such a thing? And she said, it's that wicked man, Haman, who was sitting there in the same room. The king left in an outrage. And Haman threw himself on Esther and tried to beg for his life, but it worked against him because when the king came back in the room, he said, are you going to molest my queen as well? So he threw him out. And just as he was throwing him out to be taken away, somebody said, there's a gallows that Haman made for Mordecai. He was going to hang him on it. And he said, hang him on it then. And that's what was done. And there was great victory because God overthrew the plans of Haman and his threat was, was gone. At least it sort of was. Haman was gone, but the plot against the Jewish people still remained. And so a few days after Haman died, Esther came back to the king and said, even though Haman is gone, this, this edict that you allowed to stand is still in effect. If nothing is done before the 13th day of the month of Adar, our people will still be killed. And so she pleaded with him to reverse it. Of course, because it was signed with his own signet ring, the custom was back then that if he had decreed it, it could not be reversed, even by the king. So what he did was create a second decree to counteract the first one. And Xerxes said that if anybody tries to attack the Jews on that particular day, they could defend themselves. And the last time we talked about this, we said that because it was perceived that God was now on the side of the Jews, God also caused many of the nobles and the rich individuals and the people who were armed, even the, the king's army, to be on the side of the Jews so that now the tables were turned so that now they were the ones who were going to have victory. So that's where we left off when we stopped in chapter 8. Now we come to the end of the story, the resolution, you could say, and also the epilogue, if you want to think of it in that way. If you read books, see a section of the epilogue, it kind of tells what happens after the story or the concluding part. There is a little bit of chapter 10 in here, um, but we'll talk mostly about chapter 9, as that's mostly what we've read. Now, as you've noticed, when I read the scripture this morning, we skipped over a little bit because we can't cover it all. It'd be nice if we could, but we're going to skip over uh, the middle section of chapter 9 um, from verses 2 to 16. Basically, what happens is that the Jews do attack and destroy everyone who intended to kill them. And, and it just describes how that edict was carried out. Since we already sort of talked about that the last time we were together, I figured we'd, we'd skip over that. And if that idea disturbs you, the idea of of the Jews attacking and destroying their, their enemies, I would refer you back to some of the themes we talked about last week. How, how God really does um, have in his hands the right of justice. And that it's not contrary to some of the things that the Bible talks about in terms of forgiveness to also desire justice in the world. Also, I would mention that in the Old Testament, God often used his people as agents of his justice. God doesn't use us that way now because Christ has taken on God's wrath and taken away that role from us. But in, in the Old Testament times, God's people were sometimes used as agents of God's justice to carry that out. And so really, I, I want you to view this more in an, an, an act of self-defense as these weren't just random people. It wasn't that the Jews wiped out everybody in the kingdom, but rather they only defended themselves against those who were intending to kill them in the first place. It gave them permission to defend themselves against those who would attack them. 
I'll just say those, those few words and leave it at that. If you'd like to study that more, I'd invite you to, to, do, that, to do so, or you can always ask me a question about that later. But we're going to move on and talk about the second half of Esther chapter 9. I want to focus on the epilogue of the book, the story of how the Jews chose to commemorate this event after it was over, and what that act of commemoration means for us. If you look in your text, you'll see that the Jews decided to remember this act of God's deliverance with an annual celebration. Look at Esther chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. And it says, Mordecai recorded these events. And he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of fasting, feasting excuse me, and joy, and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So after the Jews had destroyed their enemies, you see, they celebrated. They continued to celebrate this event year after year. Esther 9.23 says this, So the Jews agreed to continue this celebration that they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. So we're going to talk about this feast that's called Purim. Purim. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with me? We'll try and get to the relevance uh, later on. But I want to describe what this event was because we might not be familiar with this because we're not Jewish in nationality. We don't celebrate Purim. Uh, but this is uh, the conclusion of the story. It's an important part, just like the rest of the story is as well. Um, it was called Purim, and, and you might ask the question, why is it called that? That's a strange word, not a word I use every day in my uh, normal speech. Uh, the reason is given in verse 24. It says, For Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the em- the enemy of the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. And also, if you look down to verse 26, it reads this way. It says, therefore, these days were called Purim for the word poor. So poor was apparently the Persian word for the lot. And it's very difficult to define just what the, the lot was. Um, I believe Eric Herb. Uh, talked a little bit about some of those things when he spoke on Wednesday night about the lot and he was talking about the, the stones that are in the breastplate and, and all those other kinds of concepts. Um, but uh, the pure, pure, if we want to think of the lot, we, our best modern analogy is either drawing straws or rolling dice. Something that would appear on the surface to be random. Okay? A way of randomly drawing something or coming to a decision but was believed in certain cultures and certain contexts to have more of a significance than just randomness. So here, um, we saw in the story that I just described for you that Haman used these dice, used whatever they were, whether they were stones or whatever the case may be, to select a date. Some, I've, I've seen some drawings, uh, sketches, whatever, illustrations in children's Bibles of, of a, uh, you know, kind of a board. Like think of a giant calendar you'd lay on the floor. And imagine him tossing a stone onto this giant calendar and seeing where the stone would land it, landed. I don't know how he did it, but that's how this word came. And um, interestingly enough, the word pure also sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for dismantle, to break or destroy. So one might also say that these days that were celebrated um, 
were celebrated because it was the time when Hanan's plot was destroyed or broken to pieces, where God smashed it to bits. I kind of like that, that dual meaning of the word pure, if we want to take it that way. The im, when you say purim, im is just the Hebrew pluralization of a word. So the reason for that is because there are two days of celebration, not just one, but two. So that's why it's pluralized. Now, if Purim comes from the word for Lot, then you might expect that the day of Purim would be the 13th of Adar. Okay? And again, I can't give you an exact date. It changes every year because of the alignment of Jewish calendars and the calendar that we use. But uh, it's around that time period. And you'd expect, okay, if this is the day that he cast it, then the day that you, things were turned around would be the same day. Well, it's not. It actually tells us in the, in the verses that the 14th and the 15th day, the two days following, were the ones that were chosen for the holiday. Why is that? Because these were days after the fighting was over, when the Jews finally had rest from their enemies. Esther 9:22, I'm sorry, 20 through 22. Look down at those again. It says, Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar, the 15th day of the same month, annually. Because, here it is, on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And if you look in the margins of your NAS, or if you have an NIV, you'll notice that literally the words mean had rest from their enemies. Had rest from their enemies. So that's why the celebration that is still celebrated today is not on the 13th. That was the day of the fighting. The days that follow are the days of celebration. And uh, that's explained in verses 16 through 18. You might ask, why are there multiple days? Why isn't it just one day? So you have a day of fighting and a day of rest. Why are there two days? Well, here we go. Verse 16 says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies, to kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 17, here's a key verse. This was done on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Listen to this also, verse 18. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. You see, we kind of skipped over this part. I didn't have time to read all of it, but the part we skipped in our scripture reading this morning describes in part how Esther came back to the king after the first day of, of vengeance and said to the king, may we have permission to carry this edict out a second day. He, when she approached him, he said, ask whatever it is you like and, and it will be granted. And so in the city, the, the capital of Susa, she made this request that it would be extended for a second day. And so that's where this comes from. We see that people who lived in the countryside, in all the land of Persia, far and wide, carried out this first edict for one day. But the people who are in Susa carried it out two days. And so, the celebration for everybody who was in the surrounding countryside took place on one day, while the celebration for the others who lived in Susa was on uh, two days afterwards. So you have the 14th and 15th as the days of celebration. That's why there's two. So what was the celebration of Purim like? Well, for starters, this holiday was not just to be a somber one, but rather a celebration characterized by feasting and rejoicing. Again, verses 17 and 18 says this was done in the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. You go down to verse 18. They rested in the 15th and made it a day of what? 
of feasting and rejoicing. Okay, so that's the first thing it was supposed to be like. What was the celebration commanded to be? Celebration. Not somber, but celebrate, celebrating. Second, it was a, a day to be given gifts. Uh, Esther 9.22. It says, at that time, the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month... Oh, as the time when the Jews got released from their enemies, excuse me, and, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Here it is. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, here's what I think is funny. We, if, if you were to think of a holiday that we often associate with giving gifts, what is it? Christmas, okay? What's funny, there's no, there's no real biblical command for us to do so. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do. I'm just saying it's not something that's commanded. So if you were really to look in the Bible for a holiday where it commands us to give, or, or commands the Jewish people at least, to give presents to one another, it's here. So actually, here's a legitimate place where it says give presents of food to one another. It's kind of like um, a Christmas carol. I think of Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of... Whoever's read that story, or if you haven't read the story, seen one of the many incarnations of that on television in movie form or cartoon form or whatever the case may be. There's been numbers of of, of versions of that that have gone on on the air. But uh, if you think at the end, when Ebenezer Scrooge finally comes around, what does he do? He gives, I think it's a a turkey to to the family of Bob Cratchit, okay? And and, uh, he gives gifts to everybody, okay? So it's kind of that idea... Uh, giving presents to people and, and gifts of food. Giving presents to, to, the, to the poor. Okay? It's meant to be an outward expression of the thankfulness for what God has done for them. That's why they did it. You might ask, why, they, why would they give presents? Because they're thankful. They're excited. They're glad to give uh, some of the blessings that God has given to them back to others. Okay? So you can just feel the celebratory mood of this, what the celebration would have been like. Now, I'd said that Purim was not to be a somber holiday, but that actually wasn't 100% true. If we jump ahead to um, some verses we didn't get to, chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. You haven't read these yet. So, so jump ahead to those. And this is quite an interesting section, but I'll explain how it fits in. You see, there's one little detail we, omit, we omitted, and it says, And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, verse 31, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them. Here it is. And as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to the times of fasting and lamentation. That's a little vague. You, you, you read that and you're like, what is it talking about? They established days of fasting and lamentation. Um, one might think that it's referring back to the time where Esther was about to go in before the, the king and he said, she said, everybody fast for me. Okay? Everybody humble themselves for me. But that wasn't really turned into an annual celebration. So by the 9th century, um, it's recorded for us, 9th century A.D., there, there are records that show that Jews began to celebrate um, Purim in this way. So that on the 13th day, the actual day when the fighting was carried out, that that is a day of lamentation, of fasting, because that's when... Haman's plot was originally supposed to be hatched upon them. And then they gained victory and the next days were days of rest. So they're days of celebration. Now, whether or not that was true in the beginning of the celebration, we don't know. It's kind of a vague verse, but for now we'll assume it was and that that's what it's referring to. There was a time of, of lamentation fasting at first 
but then joy from the celebration of God's deliverance. Now, in all of this, the the celebration of Purim as a whole, this was something that Mordecai intended all Jews to continue to celebrate generation after generation. So look at chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. So Purim wasn't just a one-time event where they celebrated the days after the fighting was over, but something that Mordecai commanded all Jews to celebrate generation after generation. And this is essentially where the book ends. If you were to read on to chapter 10, there's a very brief description about Mordecai and all of his, his fame. And it ends very much like the books of Chronicles do, where it says, and now all the other acts of Mordecai and everything that he did, aren't they written in this book of the Chronicles? And it ends very much in a similar way to the book of Chronicles or the book of Kings. Um, and that's how it ends. There's a, very, there's a very few verses in chapter 10. But, but the, the bulk of chapter 9, bulk of the ending, really is here about the establishment of Purim. And so you could say that one purpose of the whole book of Esther is to explain where did the celebration come from. You see, the people that would have been reading it for the first time in the Jewish nation would have been already celebrating this. And this book, in some ways, is meant to explain where did that whole celebration come from. And this is it. This tells us. So there we have it. That's how the holiday started. Now we move on to application. And, uh, and I'm sure one of the biggest questions that you might be thinking right now in terms of application is, what does it have to do with us? Okay? Does this passage teach that you and I are required to celebrate Purim? No. No, I don't think so. So let's get that, get that off the table right away. I don't think it does. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Um, we aren't part of the Jewish nation, plain and simple. So we haven't missed something as a church by failing to celebrate Purim that we haven't done that for all these years or that churches you know don't celebrate Purim. I think there's a reason for that, a theological reason for it. It says this was to be set up among the Jewish nation, and, and that's who it was commanded for. And we aren't a part of that. So that's why we don't celebrate it. And now you might say, well, Pastor Dave, thank you for that. Appreciate that. You've just told us this whole long story about how Purim came to be. It's not a holiday I care about. I don't have to celebrate it. Why would you just spend all that time telling me about it? What was the point of all that? Okay, well, I think Purim has a lot more relevance to us than might meet the eye in in the beginning, okay? Um, Even though it's not something I believe we're commanded to celebrate, I think there are real, real principles that we can learn from this celebration and from some of the things that are said about this celebration. I'm... I'm looking here at verse 28, which says that the Jews were told to celebrate this event. And look, look with me. This is important for you to look down. So I want you to see verse 28. This is the, explaining the purpose of Purim. So that, quote, the memory of these days would never die out among their descendants. Okay. So that the memory of these days would never die out among their descendants. You see that. The real purpose of Purim was so that no one would ever forget the miraculous deeds that God did to rescue his people. 
And you know, many times in the Bible, I'm sure you know this, we are commanded to remember the wonderful things that God has done in history. Psalm 105.5 says, remember his wonders which he has done. Okay. Deuteronomy 8.2 says, remember how the Lord, your God, led you all the way in the, deserts, these, the desert these 40 years. Psalm 77, verse 11 and 12 says, in a form of commitment even, the psalmist says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. I could go on and on. Certainly, we are to remember what God has done. Even last week, as we talked about God the Avenger, we talked about the importance of remembering what God has done in the past. Uh, the psalmist said back then that his feet almost slipped and that nobody was there to rescue him, but he remembered times past when God had been his sole helper. And that gave him great confidence for the future, to trust God's promises for what was yet to come. And so we see all over the Bible, I could keep going. I, I just typed in the word remember in my Bible software and oh, hundreds of verses came, came up uh, about remembering. Okay, And especially remembering what God has done in the past. We are commanded in the Bible, just point blank, Okay, just in general, to remember what God has done. It's important for us to, to do that. And yet, the Feast of Purim goes beyond just our normal reminder to remember the deeds of God. You see, it uses an annual celebration to help those who observe it remember their acts, the acts of their Creator. And I think that's unique. I want you to, to think about an analogy with me. Think about the holidays that we celebrate as Americans. Ones without any religious significance whatsoever. You can think about um, Columbus Day. Okay, we have Columbus Day, which celebrates the traditional date. We don't know when it actually was, but it celebrates the traditional date Columbus arrived in the Americas. We have other dates that pop up, maybe in the newspaper, on the news when, when the uh, anniversaries come around. We have D-Day, right, which uh, celebrates uh, the storming of the shores of Normandy. Or we have V-E Day, okay, which is celebrating um, Victory in Europe Day, okay, from World War II also. We, of course, have Independence Day which celebrates our Declaration of Independence from Great Britain, okay? July 4, 1776. And, and in each case, what's the purpose? Why do we do that? The purpose is, is the same for each. We, we celebrate these things as a way of stopping what we normally do to remember those events which are long past so that we never forget about them, so that we're reminded year after year about what took place to kind of reflect on those events. So those acts of history, those miraculous, not miraculous, I shouldn't say that, those amazing things that, that happened or significant events in our nation's history wouldn't be forgotten. The same holds true for Purim. And I think that's something we can take away in principle, even though we're not Jews, we're Christians. In other words, even though we aren't national Jews, I believe God still wants us to remember his miraculous deeds. I think we'd all agree with that. We're all supposed to still remember the deeds that he has done so that the memory of them would not die out from generation to generation. That is in part why the book of Esther is here for us. As I said, it remains for us as Holy Scripture so that the story will never be forgotten among God's people. Okay? God has inspired the books that he has inspired for many reasons. 
But one of those is so that we would always remember what happened. So that the story of Esther, what happened to her, what happened with Xerxes and Mordecai and all involved, would not be forgotten. So that today, we still remember it. And so that we give praise to God for what He has done in the past. We are to tell it. We're to tell it over and over again so that we always remember how God rescued his people from their enemies during this time of captivity. And and there's one other important lesson that we learn from the story of Purim. We're not just to tell of God's mighty acts as a church, but also as a family, as a family. Look at Esther chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. It says, The Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who should join them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every what? Family. Not every church. Not every synagogue. Every family. So stop there. I want to reflect on that a little bit. Back in the Old New Testament times, there were not many who knew how to read and write. I think you know that. Okay? There just wasn't the ability to, to, to know how to read that was so prevalent as it is today. There weren't as many scribes to write down things. There weren't any printing presses. There weren't any computers, any smartphones or tablets or anything like that. The Internet, nothing like that to transmit information. So that meant all these stories of what God had done in the past were mostly transmitted from family to family, generation to generation, by way of oral communication. It was passed down in the family. Yes, sure, it was taught by the priests, and it was taught by other leaders in the community, but the family had a primary role in communicating what God had done in the past. And as a parent, as a father or mother, you had a unique role to be able to tell your children, to sit down with them and, and tell them what God did through Moses, what God did through Joshua, what God did with King David years and years ago. These are kinds of stories that families could tell to each other. Parents could tell their children these stories that we have now in the Bible. We have it in print for us. But now I think that's something that's lost when we no longer pass the stories of the Bible down to our children by telling them. We've gotten so used to having it in print that I think maybe we might have lost a little bit of this communication, um, maybe orally, maybe just by by doing it in a, fam- in a family setting in that way. This passage clearly says that it's the family's job to pass on the story of Esther in this particular case, and not the church. And that's really important, I think. Therefore, one important principle I think we can learn here is the importance of telling our children about the mighty acts of God. Okay, there we go. I just gave away my title. There it is. I just said it. The importance of telling our children about the mighty acts of God. Not just by reading them, having them read the Bible, but also by us being the ones to tell them. Let me tell you, just just from a personal standpoint, I was so struck by this concept that about a year and a half ago, um, I was reading reading the book of Esther, and, and it struck me for the first time, and I was reading over how Purim was celebrated, that I thought this was pretty neat. So... It was, it was about, the ironic thing was, it was around the time that Purim is actually celebrated, in April. Okay, so this was before my series started, and in part, what kind of inspired me to do the series, um, because I was so excited about the story of Esther afterwards. And I thought, this is kind of neat. I want to I take the opportunity to share these stories with my children in a unique way. So I decided that on that round, it wasn't the exact day of Purim, 
And, and I made it very clear to my family that this is not something that we're obligated to celebrate. And this is not something we're doing because I feel like we're commanded to. I said, I'm doing this more from the angle that, uh, you know, we celebrate Independence Day. We celebrate the 4th of July. We celebrate um, the Thanksgiving. We celebrate Christmas. Well, not Christmas. No, getting, not, I'm talking about secular holidays, not Christmas. Um, we celebrate Thanksgiving. We celebrate um, President's Day. We celebrate Valentine's Day. We have all these other things that we remember. Why not celebrate uh, an act of God? Why not celebrate something that God has done in history versus something just from our own country's history? So we sat down around the table, had a, had a dinner, and, and I read the story of Esther to my kids. And, and we said, we're going to celebrate um, this act of God, of what God did in the past. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And then I got curious. Just before we did that, I thought, now how do people celebrate this kind of event? And, uh, and I found some really interesting things that really engaged the senses of, of my kids. Um, we, uh, we learned through looking on the Internet that sometimes people celebrate this by dressing up in costumes. So we dressed up in costumes. And I was like, why do they dress up in costumes? Because the idea is that God is present, but also in disguise in the book of Esther. One big key of the book of Esther is that God's name is never mentioned. But he is very much present in the force behind everything that happens. So the idea as the story is told and told through generations, is that God was present, but God is also not mentioned. So we talked about that. The kids, they didn't know. They just liked dressing up in a costume, so they did. And I said, this is because we, we celebrate the fact that God is at work, and God is constantly at work, even when he is not seen with our eyes. And then we even made these things, you know, that were supposed to look like Haman's hats. And when we told the story of, uh, of, of the book of Esther, there was another tradition that said that you boo whenever Haman's name was mentioned. So when I said, okay, and then Haman plotted against the Jews, the kids went boo, and they loved saying boo and boo over and over again. They were really engaged in it. And then we, you know, watched the story of Esther and Veggie Tales, you know, in the end. It has nothing to do with Purim, just watching it on Veggie Tales. They loved it. Okay, and so through all these just different creative things, we got to sit down, tell the story. They loved saying boo every time Haman's name was mentioned. And they were engaged in the story. All of a sudden, the story came alive to them. And we were telling them the story of the Bible in a new and a fresh way as a family. We weren't relying upon the church to do it. We were telling it as a family event. And that was really cool. And you know what? What really made my week was, um, I think a few days afterwards, Amy just came up to me and said, Daddy, you want to know who my, my favorite girl hero is? And I said, who? She said, Esther. Awesome. Not, not Ariel, not Belle, you know, not some other princess from somewhere else. Esther. Isn't that what we want our kids to, to look at? I mean, biblical heroes. And so that, that had really made an impression on her. She loved reenacting the story. We even have, I think Sarah got puppets at one time, and so we were able to do the story of Esther with puppets and things like that. Just trying to think creatively about how can we tell this story to our kids. Again, Please let me, hear me out and say, I'll state what I said before. I don't think that this is a command for us to celebrate. But what I'm taking away from it is the principle that there is power in communicating these stories to our children. And just to be clear, let me use a different example. Um, I have a friend from seminary, a good friend of mine, still keep in contact with him. His name's Corey. And he has some children of his own. And uh, they like reenacting the story of, uh, of David and Goliath. And so what he does is he has his son pick up camera bag or a sock or something and puts a ball in it. And literally, when they came to visit us once, he said, oh, I want to I demonstrate this to you. And he was like two at the time. 
And, and uh, so Corey stands up and goes, who will fight me? And then it's a little boy's name's Isaiah. goes, I will fight you, Goliath. And he swings his thing and pretended to throw it at him. And, his, you know, Corey fell over and they're playing on the ground. And the kid went over and he even taught his son to take the sword and cut off his head at the end. But I don't know that you have to necessarily go that far. I have a quirky friend. He, he kind of likes to take it that, that way. But um, they loved it. Even to this day, it's a few years later, he still... He still acts this out, and they've gone on to act out other things. Teaching these stories to their families is really powerful. And so my challenge to you today is, have you ever done that? Have you ever actually talked about uh, some of these stories in the Bible as a family? And I think we have a great pattern set for us when when it comes to the time of of Christmas, because we have Advent, and and depending on what kind of, if you use an Advent calendar, some of them are very intentional. You can, you can sit down and read a verse of Scripture from the Christmas story each day leading up to Christmas. And whether you do that around the dinner table or wherever it, may, it might be, usually it's a dinner table, we've found that that's awesome, also a really cool way of explaining the significance of Christmas and breaking it down into meaningful parts. And, and so we've, we've done that in different times of, of the year when, when we celebrate Christmas, when we do Advent. really engages the, the family, and, and it really challenges you in the process. So what I'd like you to take away from this message, my big idea, if you're, <laughs> if you're in my Sunday school class, you heard me talk about that. I'm giving away my tricks here. The big idea okay, that, uh, that I want you to take away is, is the importance, what you, what you have in your title, if you forget it, it's right there for you, the importance of passing on these stories to our children of the mighty acts of God. The purpose that One of the purposes, at least, that Esther was written was so that the memory of these things would never cease to be told among generation after generation. And even though we're not Jewish, even though we don't have to celebrate those kind of things anymore, we're not a part of that nation, we can still hold that true in principle. And we can recognize that there is some role that we can take on as as family units, not just leave it all to the church and say, well, I'm going to bring my kids to Sunday school and they'll learn everything they need to know there and my responsibility is through. No. It shows, it reveals a principle in this that the family has a crucial role to play in passing these things down. So never cease to tell your children about them. When you sit and when you rise up, tell your kids about the wonderful things that God has done. Let's pray.